Hey there, Pastor Mark here. It's our prayer that this message would encourage and equip you in your relationship with Jesus. We're able to provide this content due to the joyful generosity of our financial partners. And if you'd be willing to join that tribe and help get some sermons like this around the world, you can donate at harvestbaptist.info slash give. God bless. Uh, I am not going to be long today. Uh, matter of fact, let me just give you my outline. It's really quick. Uh, we are going to be uh, looking, first thing we're looking at is, uh, do we believe the truth? Uh, what is truth? How do we know truth? Right now, truth is being thrown at us in our society in many different ways. Uh, when I was born in 1968, 90% of people in America claimed to be Christians. And I would say they, we all believe the same thing. Uh, you know, if, uh, if we were dealing with, uh, with, uh, with, with children and issues and problems that they had, Pretty much the doctors, the psychologists, the church, the families all kind of believe the same thing. That has changed drastically. Uh, now that we have in this society today, probably 60% of people claim to be Christian. And so truth is changing rapidly. Uh, and a matter of fact, I believe we're going to be see a tipping point here pretty soon uh, in our society where the majority of people will not go to church. Majority of people will not uh, claim any type of faith. We see a lot of people right now that have stopped going to church. And they say the reason that they're not going to church anymore is they don't believe it anymore. And so what do we believe? And here's the question, is what we believe true? You see, you can believe anything you want to, but what if it's not true? What if I told you I can go down and stand on Highway 28 down there, a semi-truck can come, it will hit me, and I'll get up and I'll be fine. And I really believe that. Let me ask you this, would that happen? For that truck? No, absolutely not. Why? Because it's not the truth. It's not what would really happen. And so what we evaluate is, how do we determine truth? And here's the question. Does our church believe truth? And if it does, do, have we bought into Is it an anchor to our lives? Because what I see is many times people go to church and they will say, yeah, I believe that, but many times we don't live that. And so as we look at those things, quickly that, and then I just after that I have uh, just two examples for us. I got an example in the Bible of a good dad. I would, say, I would say this, a great dad. Now, when you look at Proverbs chapter 31, that's our example for a, for a good woman and a good wife. And I tell you what, I don't know how anybody could possibly do all that. You know, you read that, like, who in the world could do all that? And I would say this, that being a father is one of the most difficult things that we do. We all struggle with it. I have failed. I have, have been times I have not been what I should have been. And so when we look at these examples, these are examples we're saying, hey, listen, here's what God says. But I realize that we all come short of that. But I would say we need to have an example to say, what should I be? And we'll look at it. But we're also going to look at someone that really did a poor job parenting. And it affected him. It affected his family. It affected everything about him. Uh, so we'll be looking at that. And then we do have some missionaries visiting with us right now. Uh, we have JT and Rebecca. JT and Rebecca, if you'd stand up for us real quick. Uh, JT and Rebecca, were driving through here. They're deaf missionaries. They work with us. Let's give them a hand. And their car broke down. Uh, so they had to take their car, drop it off at the Honda dealership. And it's an extraordinary amount of money to get it fixed. So they're looking to maybe get it towed back. So they'll probably be with us here just for a couple of days uh, as they're kind of working all that out. I'm sure when they're finished, they'll be out in the lobby out here. So please make sure you stop by and greet them. And guys, thank you for coming and being with us today. Okay. Uh, we are going to look at our slides here. I, uh, my primary responsibility, uh, when I, again, when I came here, it was Pastor Skelly and I. We had Stacy Gaynor was our secretary. Mar Maureen LaQuay was our finance 
financial uh, uh, secretary. There were the four of us on staff here. There were our, the church we had had one parking spot for the entire church. Uh, and then we moved to another church there, and the church began to grow. Great things began to happen. We began looking for another church. Pastor Skelly was going to buy land almost in Leechburg to build our church. And I told him, I said, Pastor Skelly, if you do not build that church on Highway 28, you will wish you would have. <laughs> but we couldn't find any land up here. And uh, we, we were able to find this property up here. I guess that was almost 15 years ago and come up here and just some great things have happened. Uh, but uh, since that time, as the school has grown, I really took a lot more of a teaching position. So my style of preaching really is a lot more teaching. I generally, as the, as the most part, when I started teaching, I taught history. I taught world history, American history. I love that. But I transitioned really more into science classes. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a math and science person. And so I really began to do that a lot with our school. And so a lot of my time was taken with that. So my bend as I teach is going to be almost as a science teacher. But I want us to look scientifically at really what is true. How do we determine what is true? And then what do we do with these things? Then... Let's look at our father aspect of this. And let's leave here and say, hey, God, what could you do in my life? Hey, you, you came this morning. I believe you want to hear from the Lord. I believe that. And so let's ask God right now to do something in all of our lives. Father, we thank you for this opportunity we have to gather. I thank you for this church that you've established. I thank you for the believers that come. They're so faithful. And Lord, we're here not because uh, we have the answers to things, but Lord, we believe you have the answers. And help us as we examine your word, as we look at it. Help us to be students that rightly divide the word of truth and that live accordingly. Now, Lord, bless all that happens, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Our very first slide is you would ask yourself, we have a lot of new people in our church. Remember, I had people come up afterwards and say, Pastor Ozzie, I don't know you. Uh, we had a big volunteer day, and we actually did this gymnasium here, and they did a phenomenal job of that. And I had people coming up and saying, Pastor Ozzie, this is the first time I've ever met you. And so there's a lot of you that I would not know. And so a lot of you are brand new or newer to the church. And really, if you were to ask what's unusual about our church, I would say this. The most unusual thing about our church is that we truly believe that God's word is true. And we truly try to teach God's word for what it is. I was just watching a, 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 a conference of a different denomination that when I was born would have probably been preaching the same thing I'm preaching today would have been taking God's word and saying, God's word is true, and here's what it says. And I mean, literally, this conference, there, they were almost fistfighting over people saying, why are we departing from God's word the way that we are? And we see many, even churches, have now got into more of a social gospel. What does society want to hear? What's acceptable in our society? But I would say this, our church does not do that. Our church says, here's what God's word says. And listen, sometimes it's offensive to people. And sometimes I would say this, it offends people. And I will tell you this, our job is never to offend. Our job is simply to teach God's word for what it says. And there are things that I read and listen, it offends me. And I've got to make a decision. Am I going to get angry about that? Or am I going to change some things about my life? And what I love about our church is we say, here's what God's word has to say. Matter of fact, the very first uh, verse I have up here would be really, I would say, almost the foundation of our church. The Bible says this, all scripture is given by God. It's, uh, it's by inspiration of God. And it's profitable for doctrine, for proof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Here's what it says. God has spoken his words to us. Here's what I want you to do. Now, it says this, this is given to us for doctrine. What that means is, this is what's right and what's wrong. 
well, what do I do in this situation? Uh, you know, uh, uh, my coworkers at work are saying this and so forth, but here's what God's Word says. It is doctrine. It is teaching us what we're to believe. But notice what else it's for. It says it's for reproof and correction. So when somebody's not doing these things, then we can take God's Word and say, okay, you're doing wrong. Here's what you need to do. Now, I don't know about you, but there's times in my life I need that. There's times in my life that I read God's Word and it says, okay, Charlie, you're not doing this. Here's what you need to be doing. It's for reproving me. But notice what also it is. It's for instruction in righteousness. Now, here's how you live your life. So when we come here, we take God's Word. I say this. You go to the Library of Congress. You can put every book ever written on that side of the room. You can put the Bible on this side of the room. You have divided every book ever written by, those are the books that are written by man, This is the one book that is written by God. Now, Jamie's song said this, that there comes a day when I must answer for my life. Now, there's two judgments that we have. Christians have what's called the Bema Seat Judgment. We stand before Christ, we're judged according to our works, and we're given crowns that we give back to Him. But the unsaved are judged at the great white throne judgment. Matter of fact, Pastor Mark will get into that in Revelation chapter 21 and chapter 22. After the millennial reign of Christ, all that are unsaved are called forth from the grave, the Bible says, and they stand before God and give an account of their life. Now, let me tell you this. There is no horror movie that has ever been written that could scratch the surface of what it will stand like, be like to stand before God one day and give an account for your own sins. Because when Christ was on the cross, when he was dying, he said, it is finished. Your sins have been paid. You don't have to give an account of them. I did. But many people will say, no, I will give an account for myself. And here's the thing. It doesn't matter whether you believe that they exist or not. It exists. Doesn't matter what I think about standing on Highway 28 with that truck. Doesn't matter what I believe. That truck will kill me. And we will stand before God and give an account for our life. So that's why it's so important. What do we do? What does he want? What is he asking for of me? How does he require me to live? These are big, big questions. Now, I want us to quickly just look at truth here. I want us to use the illustration to help us understand this of this set of uh, smokestacks, all right? So let's suppose you're going for a walk. We see this set of smokestacks, all right? They're up there in the sky. Matter of fact, I think the one with the red rings on it, I think is, oh, I forget. I know it's taller than a football field. I think it's almost as tall as a football, field and a, uh, a football field and a half. That's how tall this thing is. Let's suppose then that we walk there in that power plant. One day we're out walking and this is what we see. And we try to determine what happened here. Hey, what, what has caused this to happen? Let's suppose that you say, hey, I think probably the power company had a demolition team come in. They probably took explosives. They probably imploded these things and probably brought those things down. That's probably what happened. Let's suppose, though, that I say I have a different idea. I think something else has happened. So we are at a road. You say an implosion took place. I say that an airplane hit it. An airplane hit it and knocked both of those towers down And that's what happened. Now, let me ask you this. Can we both be right? Can we? No. Somebody is right and somebody is wrong. Now, we don't like that in our society, but that's the reality. I believe this. Is that right or wrong? I believe that. Is that right or wrong? Now, let me ask you this. Can I just say, well, we all have our own truth. 
well, you believe what you want to, and you believe what you want to, and that's okay. Here's the thing, though. With this, we're going to find out what happened, but God's Word is very clear. It's, it's of no private interpretation. There's nothing special in there for you. It's for all of us. Right and wrong does not change. So as we look at this, and as we look at this concept of implosion, somebody actually brought these things down, an airplane hitting it and knocking these things down, really what we begin to do is to begin to look at what I'll call our scientific method. This is what Western civilization is built upon, all right? What we do is we go and we look at the problem here, what's going on, then we begin to research what's happening. Then we make a hypothesis about what we think is happening. We test our hypothesis and then we come up with a conclusion. Now, as we're doing this, what you're going to be looking for, really, as you're evaluating it, is you're looking for evidence of an implosion. You're going to be looking for, there's probably pieces of, a, of an explosion cap on the ground. Or as, they, or as they made the, they, they had to cut wires. They had to drill holes in it to put these things in. There's probably a place that they actually had to set up their base to do all these things. You're looking for that. And if that truly is what's happened, those are the things that you'll find. Now, what I'm going to be looking for in mine is I'm probably going to be looking for a plane that's crashed. I mean, there's no way an airplane would hit those and would actually survive this. So we're looking in the woods for an airplane. Now, I very likely would say, well, the airplane might have went in the river. Okay, and maybe we can't find it. But there's going to be some proof there that an airplane has hit this. So what we will come to in this is we will come to truth. There is a reality of what happened. And so we all can't believe our own thing. Okay, we can't line up 50 people and say, okay, what do you think is right and wrong? Okay, you're okay. What do you think is right and wrong? That's okay. What do you think is right and wrong? No, there is one truth. And there's one thing that's happened here. So as we look for truth, we'll, we'll discover it. Now, what can happen though, and this is kind of be the insidious part of looking for truth, is let's suppose that the people that imploded this building are getting in trouble for it. And let's suppose that they're going to have to pay people money. And so they're like, oh, man, we don't want this to be found out. Hey, Charlie, we're going to help you. Look at what we found out in the woods. We found this airplane propeller. Why don't you take that, you show that as your evidence here, and you show them that it actually was an airplane that hit it. What we call that is, we call that planting evidence. Now, if we don't have evidence, we will plant evidence. Now, as a general rule, we think of third world countries that do things like this. They want to, uh, they have a political opponent, so they'll plant evidence to prove that they've done this crime that they did not commit, and those things will happen. Now, as we look at this story, as we examine truth, we're going to see that some of the same things have happened. And I will tell you this, if you ever plant evidence, what you're saying is, I have no evidence. Okay, so as we examine this, I want us to look at what I think is one of the most important things in our society and truly what is one of the primary dividing points. We will have a group of people on this side of the room that says, this is right. And the group of people on this side of the room said, no, that's wrong. Then we'll have a group of people on this side of the room that said, no, this is wrong. And this group will say, oh, no, that's right. And I will tell you one of the primary dividing lines between those two people is, how did they get here? What is the origin of their lives? Because I will tell you this, how you got here is going to tell you something very important. It's going to tell you this, why are you here? And then it's also going to tell you this, what happens after this life? 
Now, one group will have a, 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 an idea of origin that says, well, I, I'm just here by chance. I can make any moral decisions I want to. I can do anything I want to. I can be anything I want to. There's nothing after this life. There's another group that's going to say, oh, no, no, no. You were put here. You were put here for a purpose and for a reason. And then one day you have to give an account for that reason. Now, let me ask you this. Can both sides be right? Can we be here by chance and be created? No, we can't. So what we have to do is when we look at this question, because it's going to get into this, what is a man? What is a woman? What is the role of a father? What is the role of the mother? These are huge, huge questions that our society up until recently were very monotheistic about our beliefs. But these things have changed. I just watched a Supreme Court justice being uh, questioned by the Senate, and she was asked this question, what is a woman? And here's what she said, I don't know. I don't know. And that is the world we're living in. And I would say this, if your belief is you're here by chance, maybe it doesn't matter. But what we're going to find out is if you're here by choice and somebody puts you here, these are very, very important questions that have very, very clear answers. Now, one of the most amazing things I look at that in a science teacher is I, I teach shop here. Actually, Joe Miller's the shop teacher. I'm Joe Miller's assistant shop teacher. But what we'll, we'll do is we'll teach the kids to cut wood. We teach them to measure a piece of wood at six and three-eighths inches. Then they have to get a saw and cut the piece of wood at six and three-eighths inches. That's the whole first semester shop class right there, okay? Like, like what's an eighth? Like, you know, and, and they cut the wood all these ways. And teaching them to do that is a chore. But it's the start of it all. What's amazing is animals have what we call instincts. For instance, these spiders are born programmed to know how to build their webs. Now, the ability for them to build webs is beyond anything we could possibly create. The strength of the web that they create with their own body is phenomenal, but take all that out of the equation, it knows how to do this. Some of these spiders can build nests that will span 82 feet. That is almost the entire length of this room but nobody taught them to do that. They didn't have spider shop class, okay? And I will tell you this, some of those spiders are very creepy. I want you to know that, all right? Fortunately, they're not, they're not in Pennsylvania, so don't worry about that, all right? But you look at what these spiders can do. I mean, just by instinct, just by programming, okay? The ability to have. And another thing that we look at that is amazing is the bird's ability to build a nest. I mean, not only does it build a nest, but it builds a good nest, I mean, the winds out here will be blowing sometimes 30 and 40 miles an hour, and those nests will still be in those trees out there, okay? And if you look at how they build their nests, it's amazing. This bird builds its nest hanging from trees, and it has absolutely no hands. I mean, I don't think I could go out there, take a, watch a YouTube channel for a week on how to build this nest, and then go out there and do that. But this, this, this bird with no hands knows how to do this automatically. Now, of course, when you think of the eagle and the nest that it builds and the ability that it has, what we see is that in nature, there is a programming that cannot be explained. This animal knows how to do this automatically. So here's our question. Who taught it to him? Here's our question. Who programmed him? One of the most amazing programming in all animal is this bird. 
This bird is called an Arctic tern. The Arctic tern does one of the most amazing migrations. It will fly during its migration all the way from the North Pole to the South Pole. Then when summer comes, it flies all the way from the South Pole back to the North Pole and listen, goes back to its very nest that it left. It flies 55,000 miles during its migration. In its lifetime, its migration will carry it to the moon and back three times. And it all does this automatically. The migration pattern here is phenomenal. I don't know about you, but sometimes I get in Pittsburgh and I can't remember how to get out of Pittsburgh. It's like, now is, is it that bridge or is it that road or is that exit? And I have GPS many times helping me. Now, one question we have to ask is, where does all this knowledge come from? I mean, how could, by chance, something like that just happen? So what we do as we look at that is we have to make a choice. Okay, I'm giving some evidence. Okay, there's the... There's the explosive uh, caps on the ground. That's where they set it all up. Here's, here's the wires that they cut. I have to make a choice. Or I look on this side here and I say, well, do I make this choice here? Now, one of the most amazing things, though, is how NASA told us we came into a being. Okay? Now, NASA would be far from the Christian organization that would say the Bible is the Word of God. Matter of fact, Charles Say- uh, uh, Sagan was one of the, the primary pushers behind NASA and all that they would do. He was one of the most intelligent outspoken atheist in American history, okay? Here's what they say, though, that if you were to put that house, that tiny house, on the head of that pen, you see that? Could you imagine me, though, what if I took this entire church, the whole building, school, everything, and I condensed it down and put that on the head of that pen? Would that be an amazing thing? Would it be a possible thing? What if I took the entire state of Pennsylvania. Every building, every person, every car, every street, every tree, and condensed all that down and put that on the head of that pen. Would that be possible? What if I took our entire solar system, our Earth, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Pluto, which is probably a planet, the sun, and I crunched it all down would I be able to put that on the head of that pen? Because NASA said something more amazing than that happened. As a matter of fact, I would say this, not on the head of that pen. Do you see those little red roses in front of that house? Could you imagine me taking everything physical in this entire solar system and universe and collapsing it all down and bringing it to one point? Is that even possible. Because here's what NASA says. The Big Bang is now astronomers explain the way the universe began. It is the idea the universe began as just a single point, then expanded and stretched to grow as large as it is right now, and is still stretching. Here's what they said. Everything you see, you could literally say this, and use true, started from nothing. Everything you know, all physical things on this planet, NASA said, started from a single point, which I'm talking the size of a molecule. You could say this, from nothing. Here's kind of what it would look like. There was a point when there was nothing, and then all of a sudden, everything came into existence. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds a lot like Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And God spoke, and it was so. Here's what they're saying. We don't know how. 
because it's not really possible, but there was a time there was nothing and something happened and boom, everything showed up. That's what NASA says. But not only that though, not only did the universe show up, it says this, that right now we are dying, that our sun will burn out. Every star in the universe will burn out and everything will turn black and there will be no heat, that the universe is dying. Here's what they're saying. Somehow it's like a clock. It was all wound up and it, was start, it started from nothing, boom, and now it's working its way down which is the exact description that the Bible gives us of creation, what happens. So what happens then is we have to make a choice about truth. Now, one thing that's a little strange about this is this guy, Charles Darwin, comes along. He goes to this island called the Galapagos Islands. Galapagos Islands has some pretty cool things on it. It has these giant tortoise uh, turtles that live for a very, very long time. But the thing really that interested Charles Darwin the most was a finch. And he wrote about it in the book called The Origin of Species. Now, The Origin of Species really in our society, Western civilization in England, this is where they take it and say, okay, now we can tell you there is no God. And I will say this, it, for a long time, it did not catch on in America. It has caught on. <laughs> All right. And I would say this, most kids, high school and younger, will believe this, this theory. Now, remember, it doesn't matter if it's true or not, but do we believe truth? Now, with this book, Origin of Species, they're going to take the finch. And here's what they do is they go and they say, well, when the rainy season comes, the size of the finch's beak shrinks. And so there's an adaptation, that there is a change that happens. And they use the term, the survival of the fittest, because the bird's beak that shrinks is able to survive. And so this is where we get the theory of evolution. Now, I realize this, Darwin never said anything crawled out of the primordial pool. Darwin never said anything. All he said was that with these birds, their beaks, that the size of these things would change. Now, what he didn't get into was that when it was all said and done with, when the rains came back, everything went just the way it was. There was never a change in any DNA in any of those birds that would have to happen for there truly to be a change to take place. And so I would say this, this for the most part is what we're teaching in our society. We're teaching, hey, here is how these things happen. But when we look at it, almost like me trying to prove that it's an airplane knocked those towers over, we see the same types of things. Now, we use this scientific method here when we examine, we look at, we experiment, because here's what it comes down to. God did not make the world just because I believe it. Me believing that does not make it happen. Evolution does not happen because someone believes it. Here's what happened. One of the two things happened. One of them truly happened. If we could go back to that point, that space and time, we could say, well, Pastor Ozzy, it was just, a, it was so weird. Everything just exploded out of nothing. And, you know, and there was no God there, then evolution is true. But if we go back to that place, if we watch there, if we're there and we watch those towers fall and say, oh, here's what happens, then we know that. Do we go back and do we see these things happening or do we see a God that truly created these things. Now, as we look at this, we'll find out that the origin of species actually has a longer title. And I'm very, it's very remarkable because Charles Dawkins, who wrote The God Delusion, is probably today's most outspoken atheist. And he was being interviewed on the radio station. I was listening to it. And someone asked him, Mr. Dawkins, do you know the entire name of the origin of species, the book? And he said, no, I don't which is remarkable. That would be like you asking me, 
Pastor Rossi, what is the name of the first book of the Bible? And me telling you, I don't know. But here is the name of the book. Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection or The Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. Because I would say this, Darwin wasn't necessarily saying that we evolve from nothing. What Darwin was saying is that certain races have adapted to become more superior races. That certain races have, have these natural instincts that the word would use is to be favored races. Now let me ask you this. Does that sound like something we'd be teaching in our colleges today? Does that sound like something we'd be teaching in our schools today? But that really is the origin of his book and what he teaches. As a matter of fact, in a book called uh, Darwin uh, Racism, because I would say this, Darwinism truly is a dictator's dream. If this is true, if it is survival of the fittest, then what if I'm the fittest? What if I want your stuff? What if I want your country? What if my race is better than your race? Then what do you do? Because here's what it says. The work reveals how Charles Darwin's theory of evolution shaped the views of Hitler, the Nazis, and how the Nazis championed Darwinism during the Third Reich. Guided by Darwin's descent of man, and early Darwinists such as uh, Ernest Haeckel, the Nazis viewed the Nordic races superior to other races. Worse, they concluded the Nordic Germans would advance human evolution by ridding the world of inferior individuals and races. In claiming more living space for themselves or offspring, the results were forced euthanasia, programs for unfit Germans, the Holocaust, and World War II. I would say this, that these guys truly believed it. They said, hey, evolution's true. We're evolving. It's survival of the fittest out there. You ever watch the, uh, you ever watch the uh, National Geographic channel? And the, you know, the caribou are, on the, are taking their, uh, you know, their trek across the thing, and the wolf comes out there. What's the wolf looking for? It's looking for that, that little tiny caribou, right? And he goes, and he's, they isolate that tiny caribou, and they chase him up the hill. They run him, but he can't run no more. Then they jump on him, and they start eating him alive. Now, let me ask you this. Is that wrong that he did that? No, that's what animals do. And so if evolution is true, Hitler's just saying, hey, I'm just showing we're the fittest. And we are the ones that are adapting. Now, if you look at this document, it's very different. It says this, when in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station of which the laws of nature, notice, and of nature's God entitled them. So this writer says, here's the thing when it comes to politics. You can't just do to us what you want to. You can't say, I'm the guy in charge, so here's what you're going to do, because here's what they say. We have rights given to us, listen, by our creator. We're created in the image of God, and we can't be put in, you know, gas chambers and be gassed because you see us as inferior to you. We are created by God. Now, here's the rights that it says it has. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they have, they're endowed by their creators with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You see, our society was founded on the basis that there's a creator and that because of that, we have value, that we can't be taken and, and abused and used, but that our value says, here's how, here's how we need to be treated as people. And I will tell you this, that document right there, the Declaration of Independence, established a nation that has brought more freedom 
and taken down more dictators and tyrants than any other nation ever has. So do you see how believing something takes you to a different place? Now, it is amazing, though, because when you look at this whole story, though, this guy's name is Richard Dawson. Richard Dawson found what is called Piltdown Man. Piltdown Man was the discovery that says, hey, it's true. We have to find that link between that primordial thing that, Paul, that, that crawls out of that pool and man, all these links that would take place and all these fossils. Well, he found it. It was half human and half monkey. He found this in 1912. And until 1953, this stood as proof of evolution. Hey, it really did happen. Here's the proof. Hey, here's the airplane propeller. That airplane really did hit those towers. Now, when you look at it, there's a monument that, that so impacted science that now they have a monument. This is where Piltdown Man was found. Finally, we have our evidence until 1953, when a group of scientists looked at it and said, we're very surprised anyone accepted this. This is a human skull and an orangutan that's been cut and glued together. Then they took teeth from different animals and put them in there and filed them down. And they said, you can see the file marks. Then they took, uh, they took a type of paint and they painted the side of the face to make it look old. And here's what they said. We're just surprised that scientists were fooled by this. It's considered to be the greatest scientific hopes of all time. What we believe is important. How we come to our belief is very, very important because these things truly matter. Now, this is the temple. If you were to go to the temple, the temple would be a very dark place. As a matter of fact, the high priest goes in there. One of the most amazing stories on the Day of Atonement, the high priest goes in. He goes into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant is. He has that, that, that rope attached to his leg. He has those bells uh, on his uh, epot there around as he's going in to make the atonement. When the bells stop ringing, they pull him out. Because if he goes in with sin, the Bible says he drops dead right there. I mean, this is a very, very sacred place. That place, though, there's no windows, there's no light, it's totally dark. We had a contest at the school one time where uh, we had, a, I believe it was a candy sale, and we said, the winner, I will take you and go spelunking in a cave. How many have ever went cave spelunking before? We got any of those? Okay, several of you guys, good. Uh, we had two I took with us. One was a guy, one was a girl. The guy was actually Danny Rosenbauer, who is the worst person to possibly take case blunting. I can tell you that right now. All right? But the girl would always come to a place, and he would say, now, you can go this way, and this is the easy way, or you can go this way, and it's the hard way. And Danny Rosenbauer said every time, Pastor Ozzy, I want to go the hard way. All right? I'll never forget the first one we came to. It was this little, like, I don't know, I guess you call it a cave. It's about that big, and it had water running through it. All right? And so Danny gets in there. He starts crawling. I'm like, oh get myself into this. I get in that cave and I start crawling with Danny. I mean, I'm not claustrophobic, but I was that day. It was like, I could barely move my shoulders. I'm trying to get through there. I get all the way to the other side and we spend probably an hour spelunking that dark cave. Then they bring us to a place and they say, now everybody turn off their lanterns. We turn off the lanterns. And I mean, it was pitch black in that cave. They had us take our hands and there were hands in front of her face like this. You could see nothing. So they took one match and lit that match. And I'm telling you what, 
it lit that entire cave up just from that one match. Now, Pastor Mark is talking about the book of Revelation right now. Do you know who the book of Revelation is written to? It's written to the seven candlesticks. He says, which are my churches. You see, in the Old Testament, there is no greater picture of us than we are that candlestick in that temple. We are the only light that that temple has. And I will tell you this, we are the only light that this world has. And let me ask you this, what happens if we're shut up? What happens if we are afraid to speak up? What happens if we're more concerned about being canceled or being called names than we are saying, here's truly what the truth is? Because I think that's a big part of our society right now. We just don't want to say anything. But listen, we are the light. Here's the thing. God put you here. He gave you a word and he's given you a commission. We call it the Great Commission. And we are to tell people about the amazing things he's done for us. Hey, listen, as a church, let's do that. Now, that's my end of my introduction there. I want to really quick here, just a few minutes. That's a long introduction, I know. But hey, the message is short, all right? So uh, when I was, uh, as we look at right and wrong here, making decisions about that, my desire is that as a church that we do that. Matter of fact, it says this. It says, uh, it is appointed that a man wants to die, but after this, the judgment. Here's what the Bible says. You will stand before God. And listen, you will stand before him all by yourself. There'll be nobody there with you. It won't be, but my friends at work were doing this. It won't be, but all the guys on Friday night. It won't be, but, but, but this. It's going to be, but what did I tell you? And we will give an account for that. And listen, I want you and I want me to give a good account of that. That's what I want for us, okay? When I was in college, we would go to this building right here. This is called the Robert Taylor Homes. As a matter of fact, you would see the, the, high, the uh, this is the Dan Ryan Expressway, one of the most traveled expressways in the world right here coming out of Chicago. When I was there, I think it was, I don't know, 10, 12 lanes on each side, 24 lanes going in and out of Chicago there. Uh, you can see the city there in the background. The Robert Taylor homes were located here. Uh, this is what one individual unit would look like. That's kind of taken it out. I imagine there are probably maybe 2,000 people living in each unit. Uh, when I was in college, we'd go on Saturday. I think we'd go about 1 o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, there was a group of us, probably about 15 or 20 of us, that would go to the Robert Taylor homes to get people to go to church. They would have a bus driver. They would drop each of us off at a section of these Taylor's, uh, Robert Taylor Homes, we had three buildings that we would visit. It would normally take us about three and a half to four hours to, build, to visit those buildings. It was a very dangerous place. Almost everybody that did this was ex-military. We would go in there. It's funny because we would have our suits and a Bible. We would step off the, off the bus and they literally are selling drugs right there on the side of the streets. And they would all take off running like the SWAT team had showed up. It was just crazy. I don't know what it was. We're like, I don't know what's up with this, but we would go and we would go from door to door from floor to floor, knocking on those doors and saying, we would like to take your children to church tomorrow. I'm like, you'd like to do what? I'm like, we would like to take your children to church tomorrow. We're going to be downstairs at eight o'clock in the morning. We'll have a bus. If you will bring them down, we'll take them to church. We'll feed them lunch and we'll have them back to you at two o'clock in the afternoon. And you would be shocked how many kids we got out of this place. I mean, we would feel bus after bus, after bus. We would bring them to a room about this size. Now, one of the problems we had was this group from this set over here did not get along with the group from that set. 
And so literally, we had to park the buses end to end. Because if we parked the buses side by side, they would do these signs at each other and start crawling out the windows to get each other. I mean, it was a rough, rough bunch. But I'm telling you, we saw great things happen. I mean, we saw kids get saved. We, caught, we saw kids start coming and getting faithful to church. But let me tell you what, you have never seen a worse environment than that. And I will tell you this, the reason that environment was what it was, was there was no dads in that environment. I mean, every home we went to, everybody that brought those kids down, were either their grandmother or their mother, every one of them. When we'd bring them back, there was never dads there waiting. There were never dads involved. And I can tell you what a society without dads is like, and it is a horrible society. And as we look at that today, I want us to look at this. What is the role of dad? Two verses for us to look at. That's it. I'll never forget. I had one little boy come up to me and he said, Brother Charlie, I'm going to get out of here. When I grow up, I'm not going to live here. I'm going to get a job and I'm leaving here. That's what he told me. And I looked at that little boy and I thought, does this little boy have a chance? I mean, he's never seen a dad. He's never been instructed on getting up and going to work and doing all the things that he's imagining his life being. He doesn't have that person in his life. So as we look at this, I want us to understand God has given us families and God has given us amazing things. Quickly here, let's look at this first thing here. First thing I see is uh, that our pattern for being a father is God. Jesus said it, and this is the Sermon on the Mount when he prayed, he says, our father who art in heaven, here's our pattern, God. You want to know what a great, uh, a great dad does? All you got to do is read the Bible. What does God do? Is God gracious? Is God kind? Does God provide? Does God care? Does God love? Does God take care of? Does God chastise and correct? He does all those things. And I would say this, he is our pattern for what it means to be a father. I would say this, I don't know why, but when we look at the Trinity, when God has established our family, he used his family as the pattern. There is a father, there is a son, and there is a Holy Spirit that is the comforter that comes along and encourages and helps everybody. But it sounds a lot like my family. And that's the pattern he's given us. Now let's quickly look at two people because here's what we know. This is true. I don't care what society tells you about dads. I'm going to tell you what God says about dads. And this is what we give an account for. Here's the first thing, quickly. This man here is the Proverbs chapter 31 woman of fatherhood. He has nailed this thing. Here's what he says about him, okay? It says this, the, uh, the man in the land of Uz, whose name was Job, that man was perfect and upright, one that feared God to shoot evil. And there was born unto him seven sons and three daughters. His substance was 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 she-asses, and, every great, and a very great household, so that this man was the greatest of all the men in the east. His sons went and feasted in their houses, every one of them, on his day, and he sent and called for their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And it was so... That when the day of fasting was gone about, that Job sent and sanctified them, rose up early in the morning, and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. I will tell you the power of this man lies in verse number one. Here's what it says. He was an upright man. We'd say this. He was a man of integrity. It says this. He eschewed evil. In other words, he was an honest man. He was a man of integrity. He was a man that did right regardless of what anybody else at work was doing. Didn't matter what jokes they were telling. 
didn't matter what they were looking at. It didn't matter what they were talking about. It didn't matter what they were doing on Friday or Saturday night. This was a man that was a man of integrity. He eschewed evil. He even goes on to tell the story. He said he made a covenant with his eyes. Here's what he said. I will not look at a girl and lust at her that's not my wife. I mean, this was the king of men. And I will tell you this, the story rests on that. Let me tell you where the strength of our church is at. The strength of our church is what is our integrity? Let me tell you what the strength of our family is. What is my integrity? That's where this starts at. But notice where it leads him. Talks about his family here. Talks about his substance. This was a wise man. This was a man that worked hard. He's going to have these thousands of sheep over here. That's the textile industry. He makes clothes. He has thousands of camel in a completely different field. That's his shipping industry here. He owns his own trucking company. He has thousands of oxen and donkey. That's where he, that's where he does all his plowing. He has an agricultural center here. I mean, this man is a man of business. This is a man that is diligent, I would say this, in everything he does. But I will tell you this, I believe that's based in his integrity. That's where that comes from. Now, I will tell you this, men, we have got our hands full raising these boys. I'm very fortunate. I don't have a son because trying to get these boys off of video games and into their families and trying to get them off their phones and into their families is a chore. But listen, we better be up for that. All right. This was a man that worked hard. Goes on about his family. I love this. He invites his family over, everyone for their birthday. This was a man that valued his family time. I mean, uh, this was the, this person's birthday. Everybody's coming over. We're celebrating together. Everybody's getting together. He was the one that led that. He kept his family focused. He kept his family together. He kept that bond. He kept them intact. That was what he did as a, as a father. But it also says this in verse five. He was a man who was deeply spiritual and was very concerned about his children being deeply spiritual. And I think that's where a lot of us struggle. I think a lot of us struggle with that. I mean, being a spiritual father. I mean, what does that mean? I will tell you this. When I was 18 years old, I made a huge change in my life. And here's what I said. God, I'm going to start reading your Bible. And if you'll show me what to do, I'll do it. And let me tell you what. Did he start showing me things? And let me tell you what. I kept reading it. And let me tell you what. God did an amazing work in my life. Here's my challenge to you. He's your, he's your pattern. Read his words, what would he have you to do? That was a man that said this, my spiritual job as a father is vitally important. A man of integrity, a man of work, a man that, that rallied his family together, but a man that understood his spiritual value. Last one, this is a man that really did a poor job. Matter of fact, we won't read all this, but this man's name was Eli. Here's the thing about Eli though, Job was a businessman. Eli was a priest. And here's what can happen. Sometimes I think we can believe because we have a position or because we do something in a church, that can happen with me. I can think, well, I'm a pastor. My kids are going to be okay. Hey, they go to the youth group. They're taught in Sunday school. They go to a Christian school. But boy, what I find out is that not, not necessarily the case. Here was a man who thought it appeared because his children were in church that they were going to be okay. And here's what it says about his sons. He would not correct his sons. We'd say this. He didn't discipline his sons. Matter of fact, the Bible uses them as examples for, it calls them the sons of Belial. And really, I would say this, we have two examples here. We have a father in Job who says, this is who I am. We have the father in Eli who says, here's what I will not do. Now, here's my challenge. We're finished right now, all right? Here's my challenge to all of us. 
Let's understand this. I'm here for a purpose. And one of the most important purposes I have is to be a husband of my wife, to care for her, to love her, to take care of her needs. Another vitally important person, uh, 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 position that I have here is to be a father, to lead and guide those girls and the decisions they're making. I'm very fortunate. Two of them are getting ready to get married and I'm handing them off to them. Like, okay, they're yours now, all right? But let me tell you, let's make sure, guys, let's make sure we understand the importance of that. We have a lot of young men in this room. A lot of of young men in here are single or just getting married. Here's my challenge to you. There's a lot of things vying for your time. There's a lot of things vying for your attention. But the day will come when we stand before God, and I promise you, these are the big, big rock things. Let's make sure we do those correctly. 